Okay, Tom, on to forum submitted questions. I have two questions here about consciousness evolution from Eric V. The first is, when an enlightened master such as the Buddha or Lao Tzu passes away, will he be born as an enlightened master right from the beginning of his next lifetime, or would he have to do some work first in order to arrive at the point where he left off in his past experience packet? And secondly, does an IUOC, an individuated unit of consciousness, reach a point in its evolution where it no longer needs to play an avatar? Okay. Uh, the answer to the first one is uh, uh, it does have work to do in order to uh, uh, get back to the point of where it was. And we already discussed that uh, just a little while ago, that you come here with a potential, with a proclivity, with a sense perhaps of uh, intuitive understanding, but nothing specific, nothing, no, no facts, if you will. You're going to have to relearn all that, reapply it, and um, it's in the application. It's in the choices that you make in that particular experience packet. You'll have an opportunity to redevelop these things, okay? and the choices you make will be different because it's a whole different experience. You know, it's a different framework in this next life. But if that's the way you are inside, that's your quality, you will tend to make choices that represent who you are inside but you could make bad you know bad choices or something else and maybe de-evolve a little bit you always have that potential but you come in with a probability of of uh you know making choices that will that will support the level to which you started with at least but you have to earn it you still have to make those new choices in that new in that new format that new uh set of choices that that defines your your new incarnation, you still have to make all those choices and reaffirm what you know. Make those choices on a level that is that is in consonance with what you came in with. Start making at least choices that are really an expression of you. And um, you could de-evolve. You could get your intellect wrapped around you know getting rich quick or something like that, and end up making a whole bunch of bad choices. Well, then that means you really didn't have that that securely to begin with because if you'd had that idea about getting rich really wasn't an important thing to do and could be a, a problem if you didn't have that then or if you did have that if you already learned that lesson very firmly you wouldn't have that problem so what it does to start over if you will to start over means you get to see whether you really did learn it or whether you just think you learned it because after all once we get to the point that uh you know, we've learned a lot of this. It's really hard to separate how much of it we've really learned and how much of it do we just understand. How much can you separate, uh, I'm doing this because I think I should, or I know I should, or I'm doing this because that's a representation of who I am. See the difference between acting and being. Well, eventually that difference between acting and being as you grow up can get kind of hard to differentiate. Which is it? What am I doing? I've been doing, I've been being kind so long that it just seems natural for me to be kind. But am I being kind because I thought that that's what I should do? I'm acting or because that's who I am. Eventually, it gets hard to tell if you've been doing it for a long time. You see, it could just be habit of acting. And you haven't really learned that lesson at a deep level. You haven't changed, in which case. You may think that you're a very uh, evolved person and uh, so on, but you may not be quite as evolved as you thought, even though everything you said and did 
seemed to be highly evolved because a lot of it was maybe your understanding, not just your being. Much of it may have been at your intellectual level. So it's good that we start at the beginning and have to reaffirm what we know through the choices that we make in a totally different context, because now the habits have to be re, you know, redone. The old habits don't work anymore. We're in a different place, different people, different situation. Old habits don't apply. So we can't rely on habits making us look good. We need to actually make choices. And so even the, even the Buddha or Lao Tzu, when they come back uh, for another experience packet, they have to take what they've learned, apply it uh, here in a new context, and then go on up from there. So no, they don't just uh, pop in at uh, 45 years old and become a, you know another master that walked out of the woods you know from nowhere. Though that's possible, that's generally not the way it's done. The second question, uh, does an does a, uh, avatar reach a point where he no longer plays, uh, does an IUFC reach a point where he no longer plays an avatar in a VR? Well, uh, no. And the other part was since participating in a VR is no longer relevant to its in evolution. It, if it is in any situation where it has experiential Experience. If it has experience, if it's an experiential anything, then it is in a VR. You only get experience, you can only experience in a VR where there's a rule set, where there's rules that define that experience. Now, it may be a very, very light rule set, not a real, a real tight one like we have here in this virtual reality. The rule set may not be much more than a communication protocol so we can communicate with each other, but that's a rule set. That's a little rule set that we abide by just to communicate. So it could be simple, but it's still a VR. If you're going to experience, you have to experience relative to some, you know, if you're playing a game of any sort, the game has to have rules. If there's no rules, then there's no game. So to say that they don't get in a VR anymore is not the case. You're always in a VR if you're experiencing anything. Experience only happens in VRs. Otherwise, you're just consciousness. And if you're just consciousness, you're part of the larger conscious system, then, you know, that's the creator of the VRs, if you will. But the IO, IUOCs are something separate. Okay? Now, they're a part of consciousness, but they're a part that's, you know, in a way removed, just like your arm is something separate, uh, you know, from your leg. It's removed and it has its own free will and it has a virtual reality in which it can interact, even if that's just language. The consciousness system is just this monolithic thing. So if you're a part of it, then you are not any longer using a free will or making choices. You're just a part of it. Now, it has free will and can make choices, but you don't anymore. Your IUOC is just a part of the larger system then you're basically gone and you are just become another piece of that monolithic one thing with its one free will and its, you know, its, its choices that it makes. You're no longer an independent player anymore. So in order to be an independent player, you need a virtual reality 
to live in, to communicate with. So everybody has a VR. Now, we can imagine that what he meant was uh, you reach a point, does an IOC reach a point where it no longer plays in a VR with a very strong rule set like this one, you know, one that seems physical, a reality that is very interactive, like a physical reality. Is that true? Well, yeah, that could be true. You could get to a point where you would rather be doing something else. But mostly the answer would be no, because this isn't just about the individual. The individual, when an individual grows up and becomes love, then it's about other. It's not just about what's good for me. All right, I've, I've beaten this game. I want to go on to the next level. Well, if there's challenges for you in the next level for growing up still, then great. Go on to the next level and grow up there. But mostly our challenges are how we interact with other people. It's our interactions with other entities that defines what's important. So if you're interacting with other entities, it's not about you. It's not like, how, how high can I go? How can, can I go up to a point where, you know, I don't have any um, people to interact with anymore? It's just all about me. Well, not if you're grown up. If you're grown up, you say, no, gee, there were a whole lot of people in that last reality I was in that need a lot of help. I could be useful there. You see, it's about giving. It's about other. So you don't just grow up because it's only about me and I'm going to grow up. And now that I'm grown up, I don't have to mess with those people anymore. That's not grown up. That's self-centered. So it doesn't work like that. It's not that you graduate, graduate, graduate until there is nothing to graduate for. And then you spend eternity playing harp on the cloud. It's not that sort of thing. You grow up, and in the process of growing up, you care about others. When you care about others, you've always got something to do. You always have challenges. You always have something to engage with that's profitable both for you and for other people. So growing up means becoming other-centered. That's becoming love. It's about others. You don't become love and then go off by yourself because you have disdain for the lowly people that you no longer can learn from. See, only if it's about you do you have that attitude. So these people who grow up would be eager to participate in a VR like this because they could be helpful. They could be part of the solution here. It's not about them. It's about what can they contribute to the whole. And everything in that larger consciousness system is the whole. How can they contribute to that? Well, sitting on a cloud and playing your harp forever is not a big contribution. That's a, that's a self-centered picture. So mostly, no, that's not the case. People stay in the game. They come to help because they're other-centered, not self-centered. All right, Tom, thanks for clearing that one up. Uh, the next one is from our good friend Bartosz. Um, he submitted it beginning of July, so we apologize that we didn't get around to doing it in the last fireside chat. Um, he writes, Tom, I've recently come across a person exploring the esoteric knowledge, and one thing got me intrigued. He said that here in the physical matter reality, it's really hard to distinguish who we really are. There is the mind with its personality, running thoughts, goals, and logic processes. Then he distinguishes the subconsciousness or the soul, which has mental capacities of, say, a two-year-old. That is the powerful side of us that accepts all sorts of programming. It has its goals, its desires, its passions, and drives our motivation. But alas, even that can be set aside as not being actually ourselves. 
His logic process here goes as such. If it can be observed, it's not really you. We observe our emotions and thoughts. Therefore, we are neither our thoughts or our emotions. He asks if, if he thinks that is actually right. Uh, this person who um, is exploring this esoteric knowledge says uh, he calls the true me the observer. So, Tom, I wonder how this model intertwines with MBT and what commentary you could provide uh, regarding this. Perhaps if you could just do a quick recap on consciousness, both the big C and little Cs, uh, IUOCs, FWAUs, and most importantly, what a regular person here in physical matter reality is able to juice out of all of it themselves without actually reaching out to the non-physical experientially. Uh, in way of a shortcut, he says, if we assume that our true me can be best be experienced from a state of point consciousness who are we right there and then at that very moment are we the ruoc or are we the free will awareness unit okay that's about 10 questions or so that we've run across there in that uh sorry in, in that uh, paragraph but let's see i've got it pulled up so i can i can keep yeah. up with this one otherwise i would never remember all of that all of that uh, yeah so that uh, is a doozy okay. you're right <laughs> So he talks about, uh, you know, if it can be observed, it's not you. You know, we observe emotions and thoughts, therefore we're neither. And then he says, is that right? Well, yes, that is, that is right within the context that is being used there. That's the idea of a camera cannot take a picture of itself. Okay. Now, when that's a metaphor, and in that metaphor, there are no such things as mirrors. You know, we don't want to add mirrors into the metaphor. It's just that a thing doesn't isn't aware of itself. So if you can observe something, you're the observer, then what you observe is not you because you don't observe yourself. You just are. And uh, you don't have a lot of insight into, into, the, into the I am is what he calls it. So in, in that context, that is, that is right. Okay, the next was, um, uh, he wanted to know about the big C, the little C, and... Um, can you, uh, you know, can you grow up without ever reaching out to uh, non-physical reality experientially? Well, you know, big C consciousness, that's you at the IUOC, Individuated Unit of Consciousness. You know, that's the, that's the larger consciousness system. You as an Individuated Unit of Consciousness are a piece of this larger consciousness system. So big C consciousness, as I've used it before, just differentiates that part of consciousness from the little c consciousness, which is the consciousness that is the subset of the IUOC that is plugged into or logged on to the avatar. That's the little c consciousness. Okay, That's what we think of as our personal consciousness. It's the free will awareness unit. It's a subset of something bigger, which is a subset of something bigger. So to differentiate that, that part of our consciousness, free will awareness unit, from all the rest of it, I called it big C, little c, although that big C contains the larger consciousness system and an IUOC. All right, now, it says, more importantly, most importantly, what a regular person here in PMR is able to deduce of themselves or out of it in themselves without reaching out to the NPR experientially. You can do everything here without reaching out to the non-physical experientially. That is not important. That's a side issue. 
it's mainly important for people who are very left brain, very logical process oriented, who can't take the next step forward unless they can have an experience of this larger consciousness system, because until they have the experience of it, it isn't real. Okay. So those people who can't intuit it, don't get it, um, don't get it intuitively. Don't see the, you know, the reality of it in a way that's, that's, that is deeper than logic. They then need this experience in the non-physical because that then convinces them that, whoa, there is a reality out here that's different than the one I live in. And it's a superset to the one I live in. You can often convince yourself of that by doing things like remote viewing, healing, um, uh, interacting with uh, other, other beings to, in, with telepathy, things that are easy to do and are evidential. You can do these things and then check out your remote view. Was that, was what's there, what you saw was there? Well, if it's not, then you, know, you're, you weren't there. You just thought you were. If you are seeing those things, if you are able to heal, if you are able to connect with people uh, at an intuitive telepathic level, then after you've done it hundreds and hundreds of times, you no longer have this question of, is that possible? Because the only way that could be possible is if there is another reality that is superset to this reality. So then, bingo, you've convinced yourself that that's real, and now you can go on. You know, and until you convince yourself of that, you can't go on because you're stuck in a left brain that wants to know. Sort of like Vanessa there, who gets uh, stuck in her need to know and makes it difficult for her to go on to the next step until she finds out. So if you are intellectual like that, then it seems to be important for you. Otherwise, your process stops. But it isn't really important at all. It's only important to the intellect. It's not important to the being. At the being level, what you're trying to do is become love. You don't have to ever get outside of this reality to become love. What you're trying to do at the being level is let go of your fear. Get rid of the ego and the belief. Be whole. You can do that without ever going to any place non-physical. You see? So it's not important to do those things. That's just a way, kind of a, a strategy that we use for people who live out of their heads or very intellectual to get them over this hurdle of, is it real? Because I don't want to invest any of my time or energy if it's not real. So first I have to know it's real before I will worry about getting rid of fear or love or any of the rest of that stuff. I need to know that there really is a larger system and that this is its purpose. So for those people, it's a it's something that helps them out to be able to do it. But even those people, if they could put that that living out of their head aside and say, well, whether it's real or not, coming love, getting rid of fear, getting rid of the ego and beliefs is really a good thing anyway. You know, whether it's real or not, that's a good thing, all in itself. And they could just start from there and grow up, even if they did live out of their heads. And that growing up would be just as useful and just as, as important to them as you know, it would be if they went into the non-physical first. So it's really not necessary for anybody to ever go and experience non-physical reality. Growing up is what we're here for. 
the experiencing other reality frames is a is an extra. If that's useful to you, then go do it. If it's not, you don't have to do it in order to grow up. So, Vanessa, you can always feel like you're doing it, you're succeeding, and you're becoming, you know, less fearful, more love, less ego, and just feeling that you should feel successful rather than feeling failed because you can't get into the non-physical. I'm a failure. I'm failing at this. I'm not doing it. You see, well, what you're not doing is something that's really not all that important anyway. So that's, you know, that's kind of the idea here. So if what's important, you know, is, is what you want to work on, then work on getting rid of the fear, getting rid of the ego, getting rid of the beliefs. That's important. You don't need to get into the non-physical to do that. And that's really what it's all about. Okay. Um, let's see. What was the very last part of that? Um, see, uh, in a way of a shortcut, if we assume that our true me can be best experienced from the state of point consciousness, who are we right then, right there and then? Okay, in point consciousness, he says, are we an individuated unit of consciousness or are we a free will awareness unit? We are a free will awareness unit, of course, that is part of an individuated unit of consciousness. Because when we go into point consciousness, we are going there through the effort of a free will awareness unit. Free will awareness unit is opening up its mind within its context of being immersed with this avatar. Okay, so the free will awareness unit is what you are at that point. You're a subset of consciousness that has logged on to this avatar, and now you're letting the avatar go. You said, you know, forget the avatar. I'm consciousness, and I want to experience as consciousness. So that's what you are as point consciousness. <clears throat> you're a free subset of consciousness with free will, but you are still logged on to that avatar. You're just not paying attention to the avatar. You're ignoring the avatar and that virtual reality entirely and just experiencing yourself as consciousness. All right. Okay, Keith, that takes us to part two. Part two I, um, what, of, of what, Tom? A part two of his question. I don't have a part two. Yes. Oh, in that case, maybe you can read it out. Okay. Some of those ideas come from a model called transurfing which encompasses such things as balancing forces and pendulums and egregores. It's a new word for me. I have never, to my recollection, heard from Tom on egregores, well, it's because I've never heard about those either, and balancing forces. Is it something that you are familiar with and have observed in non-physical reality? And it goes on to explain. Egregores are supposed to be low-level beings that arise from groups of people, a group consciousness, if you will. However, their purpose is to treat each member as sort of a battery and then drive its own existence by steering each member of a group in a given direction. Okay, that's an that's a egregore. Balancing powers would be akin to a mechanism that is meant to steer people away from putting priority on anything other than evolution towards the source, God. If you care about a car the most in your life, balancing forces are supposed to step in 
and knock it down for you to realize that it is not a worthwhile pursuit. Is such a thing a tool at the dispense of the system or more of a gimmick introduced by the author of this model to make his model more viable? Well, what these things are, are metaphors, you know, at best. They're just simply metaphors. No, these things don't exist as separate entities. There is no egregore that uh, basically has its own free will that kind of takes over the group and then, and then uses mind control to steer the group in the direction that it wants to go. No, that's not the case. Uh, a group, a uh, group consciousness, is a sum of all the consciousness of all the members. So let's say a group has 10 members, then the group consciousness is a, is a vector sum of those 10 members, if that defines the group. That's the group consciousness. So it's not a thing that exists with its own free will that then steers the group around. So I'd say that is just a uh, kind of a fantasy because what people have have seen that makes them think this would be true is they notice that a group like a mob will act differently than any one of the people in the mob. You get a mob and the mob is much lower quality, can make, can make worse decisions than any of the individuals would make by themselves. But that's not because there's some, some uh, being that has, has been created above them that's now pushing them on to more and more evil. That's because that evil was in there all along but it was restrained by their sense of propriety and their sense of what was right and their, you know, their sense of uh, perhaps fairness or, or uh, ethics. But once they get in a group and that group validates a lack of ethics or validates uh, you know, vindictiveness or something like that, then that thin veneer of, of civilized behavior starts to come, art, come off and what's left is what these people truly are underneath the hood, you know, what do you got under the hood? Well, you've got a lot of fear and ego that enables you to do some pretty awful things that you wouldn't do when you were restrained by your own sense of propriety and, and perhaps sense of ethics or sense of being singled out or sense of being caught and, you know, being thrown in jail. But now you're with these other people and they're gung-ho, so you're, you're gung-ho with them. That's just a, a descending to the common denominator of the group. Of the of the various people in the group consciousness, and the problem, and that's what happens. You know, there's that lowest common denominator of the group. What what's the lowest thing that that any of these people are in this group? Well, that's what the group becomes. Kind of just sinks to the lowest level of its members. So it's not really a being, and I can see why people might think that's what's going on. They're they're as a group, they're being taken over by something uh, bigger that's evil and drives them forward. But it's not it at all. They're just being themselves. And when they're nicer and kinder, they're acting. They're acting more civilized because they've learned that from their culture. Now, what about this mechanism that pushes people toward uh, growing up and becoming love? And if they fall in love with their car or their house or their status or their job, and they think that's the most important thing in their life, the balancing forces kind of take them down a peg or two to show them that it isn't. Well, that's not another uh, being either. That's just the way the system works. The system works that if you're running on ego, you tend to poison your own game. You, know, you tend to mess things up. 
So that's a that's just the nature of consciousness. Uh, when you're when you're making choices that are poor, they tend to eventually it, it bites you. And bad choices create bad things that happen. So if your whole life is is wrapped around your status, then eventually that'll probably you know self make you self destruct. You'll get to a point where life isn't worth living anymore. So. These are just natural things that people see, and when they see it, they make up metaphors to describe it and explain them. And then the problem is they, instead of just thinking those are metaphors, they begin to believe that the metaphors are real things. So it's science does the same thing. You know, it's, I wouldn't uh, give this guy any black stars for that because almost everybody does the same thing. You know, we make up metaphors and then we tend to believe them. That they're that they're real and not really metaphors. It's just the way we tend to work. All right, so that's part two. Ready to go on, Keith? Oh, I thought you was going to tell me there might be a part three. No. Huh? Okay. That's it. <laughs> okay. Um, Adam joined us about uh, 30, 40 minutes ago. He's got a question for you. Adam, it's all yours. Hey, what's up, Tom? <coughs> Good to see you, pal. Yeah, we talked a while ago about uh, media and how uh, I was I was becoming kind of less tolerable with violent media. I couldn't couldn't take it anymore. And my question today is more about children's media. And uh, I'm just looking for your perspective on it. I'm wondering, you know, what concepts are shouldn't you introduce to a child what should you know uh what's too much what may be not good to see um because a lot of you know disney movies and stuff they have really uh you know content that's powerful you know or or extreme in some cases of parents dying and stuff and uh, i'm just looking for your opinion on that okay as a uh as a parent you should be very uh, concerned with uh, what your children uh, see, you know, the kind of media that they engage in. And you should be uh, a, uh, a censor to censor out the stuff that you think is not good for them because children aren't able to make those decisions themselves. Now, when they get to be, you know, 15, 16, 17 and higher, well, now they're, you know, they're starting to make, those decisions for themselves and you need to back off and let them kind of do what they, whatever they do. But when they're two and three and four and five and seven and so on, they can't make those kinds of choices. And our culture expresses itself in terms of our media. And if we have a culture that is very self-centered, that is all about power and force, then that's what we're going to express. In our in our writing, in our pictures, you know, in our movies, we're going to express that that ethic of power and force and domination and and uh, that kind of thing. So it's hard to take your child out of its culture. It's in its culture, and it's you know you can't put your child in a in a closet and keep them in there you know for, until they're twenty five and let them out and figure well now you're an adult you can go you know uh, mix it up in the real world. That's not a good thing. So they are going to get that at other kids' houses, just like you may not feed them sugar. But when they go to, you know, Susie or George's house, they're going to get a handful of cookies because that's what mom's going to serve. 
So you have to realize that your children are going to get acculturated into their culture, whether you like it or not. But you can, the younger they are, prevent some of the worst sorts of stuff from them having to deal with it too early. You know, the older you get, the more able they're to deal with things. So I would say, you know, if you look at, uh, uh, well, some, some kid vid things are very good. You know, like Sesame Street was very good for kids. Uh, Daniel Tiger's one I've seen recently because I have grandkids. So I get to keep up with uh, this sort of thing a little bit. And I, my grandchild was watching Daniel Tiger in, in the lesson about mom and dad always come home, you know, that sort of thing. And those sorts of things are very good. Children will learn a lot from those, and, and they get a sense of security out of watching those things. On the other hand, you have Power Rangers, and it's all about force and violence. If there is a problem, the way you solve it is with force. No, no Power Ranger ever sits down with the bad guy to have a discussion about you know, how, how to do things better. You know, it's all about force and violence. Well, you know, that's another very uh, you know, ubiquitous thing on the, on the TV. And little boys, much more than little girls, are naturally about force, fighting, and violence. That's part of the male, you know, instincts. And that's the way we think and the way we do things. So little boys just light right up with Power Rangers and Superman and Spider-Man and all the heroes because that resonates with them and with their, their, uh, their instincts. Little girls less so, but perhaps still some. Uh, in any case, you can't take their instincts away from them either. You know, that's another thing that you just have to deal with. You can't try to make them into something that they're not. But you can police the airwaves to the point that, you know, whatever they pull up on their, uh, on their little computer that they have, and by these days, by the time you're five years old, you have your first computer of some sort, you know, even if it's just a tablet. You need to be very careful about what it is they can log into and what it is they can they can see, um, because that internet's just wide open. Everything's there, and there's very few, uh, you know, kind of the, the the biggest gate, the strongest gate that's out there is that if you're not 18, don't click here. You know, that's not exactly a very uh, securely locked gate. You know, but that's about as strong a gate as there is out there. So you have to be pretty careful about limiting their their uh, access to adult material when they can't process adult material. They're not old enough with enough experience to process that. So it's not healthy. It's not good for them to uh, get things that they can't understand or can't process. They will see it in a in a kind of a cockeyed way that will be perhaps depending on them and their particular personality, you know, could be not good for them. So yeah, I just watch it and, um, you know, you're not going to stop your little boys from being power rangers or ninja turtles or any of that other stuff that kids see because boys will be boys. That's that what, that's what that Y chromosome does to us. You know, it makes us interested in those kinds of things. That's the way boys play. It's a lot about force and violence and that sort of thing. But you don't have to go buy them six different kinds of guns, you know, that fire, uh, you know, uh, things at each other. Or you can keep the violence to a minimum when they start fighting with each other, kind of teach them respect and how to deal, give them some education on, uh, you know, how to resolve problems and issues. 
other than force. I don't know. I just say it's a our our media represents the quality of our consciousness, which isn't very high. So you as a parent need to realize that some things just aren't appropriate for your children. And though they will deal with them sooner or later, you know, they don't have to deal with them at three years old. You know, three-year-old shouldn't have to deal, you know, with his parents being murdered. You know, that's just not something a three-year-old is going to process. You know, well, they process something very similar to that, you know, when Bambi's mother gets shot, right? I mean, that's, uh, you know, here's a little Bambi, the star of the show, and his mother gets blown away by a hunter. Well, a lot of kids found that traumatic, were terrified and, you know, couldn't sleep and had nightmares, you know, for two or three years afterwards. Other kids watched it, no problem. In one ear, out the other, they didn't internalize it. So it kind of depends on the child and where they are, their level of security, what worries them, how much do they think? You know, some children are very, uh, um, you know, they, they think too much in a sense. You know, they confuse themselves because they don't have enough uh, understanding or experience to make things out of what they see. But if they're very intellectually driven, and even a four-year-old can be intellectually driven, some kids are and some aren't. If they're very intellectually driven, this stuff bothers them a lot more than if they're not. They don't connect to it personally, maybe, if they're not. So it depends on your child. But it's something to be very cautious about. You can, uh, you can help your kids grow up healthy just by limiting a lot of the unhealthy stuff that they might see otherwise. They're going to get it eventually anyway, but hopefully they'll be older and will be able to process it better than they would be if they got it you know, at home at a very early age, which means you have to watch what you watch. You know, because you may watch death and destruction on the tube because it amuses you because you're a part of this culture. But that doesn't mean that your three-year-old ought to be in there watching it with you. And if your three-year-old needs to be with you because you're the parent, then you just need to watch something else. And you bring up, you go to YouTube and bring up a, a Daniel Tiger episode, and that's what you watch until your three-year-old goes to bed, you know, that sort of thing. So the parents have to take that responsibility. It's it's definitely interesting raising a kid with the MBT perspective and being hyper aware of culture and, you know, family culture and personal culture and how all those things are kind of mixing together. Yeah, yeah. but thanks. that uh, That's a great perspective. Uh, thanks for sharing that with me, Tom. You're welcome. All right. Forum user Zach McCracken uh, asks... When you interact with someone you know in a dream, are you actually interacting with their individuated unit of consciousness, or is the larger consciousness system using a non-player character? It uh, could be either. You could be interacting with them. People sometimes can have dreams together, and they both remember it, and both uh, can bring up uh, details about it. So that's possible. It doesn't happen very often, but it might be actually the other person. Uh, and that person could be aware of it. People do go on joint dreams together occasionally, but that's in the margins. The next thing down from that would be that you're interacting with another person at their, really their free will awareness unit level, 
and you're interacting with them uh, in some way because you can do that. Uh, we're all netted. We're all communicating with each other. So if it's a dream about a specific person, there may be a connection with that person's free will awareness unit, and they may not be aware of it. They may uh, not have any awareness of it. So, uh, or it could just be a stand-in because most of our dreams are symbolic. They're metaphors. And your friend that's in this dream may just be a metaphor for something in that dream and has nothing to do with your friend other than the fact that your friend makes a good metaphor, makes a good metaphor for that person you like and trust, okay? And that's just a kind of a character in your dream is some person that you would like and trust. And they give that the face of your friend because that's what that means to you. That's a good metaphor for you. So dreams are like that. In that case, that particular individual in your dream would just be a symbol, you know, a metaphor. So it could be any of the above um, possibilities. They're all, are all there. But mostly, it's just metaphors and symbols in your dreams most of the time. The people that you meet in your dreams that you know in waking life just represent a type of person or uh, the way you think about them is then made into a metaphor. It's not really about that person so much. Most of the time is the way it is. Not always, but that's more typical. All right. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I have a three-part question from Channel 79 uh, on nudging and external interference. Uh, interference, sorry. Um, Tom, we can be nudged by the non-physical guidance in this physical matter reality if it can encourage us towards growth opportunities. So question one, are the NPMRN beings also nudged by the system that contains their system, or did they evolve completely without external interference? I've not really considered that, but just give me a second or two. I'd say yes, but at a much lower level of of uh, occurrence. In other words, you can always be nudged by by uh, anyone. Actually, uh, we can communicate. We're all netted. Okay, all consciousness is netted together. So you can use your intent and nudge somebody else with your intent. It's a telepathic communication you make with them across the the uh, consciousness network, if you will. So those sorts of things are doable within all consciousness. So the all the way up to the larger consciousness system, and if we call that like the you know the highest level of consciousness uh, 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 structure, then yes, that structure can nudge us and nudge anything else, and we can send messages to it. Although our message probably isn't much of a nudge to the system, but uh, it might. You know, make the system think about something it otherwise wasn't thinking about. So we all nudge each other. So I'd say yes, the nudges go around all over, and many of the many times, those entities that are kind of in the management of, say, a virtual reality like ours, or even of the end division, which is several virtual realities like ours, um, you know. We can nudge them some, they can nudge us some, and they probably get nudges from from uh, above and below and crossways as well from their peers. So nudges are available all around because we're all netted. All right, and question two says, uh, can you say just how common it is for physical 
matter reality and non-physical matter reality systems to actually receive external interference and three was how do the results of the different approaches actually vary do you personally have a preference um uh, we don't get a lot of quote interference unquote or we could also call that interference help if it was meant for uh something to help us uh, grow up um we can get some things that are called interference because, like I say, IUOC to IUOC or free will awareness unit to free will awareness unit, you can get things that are interference. It's possible that you could get that. Mostly it doesn't happen very much, but that's possible. Um, we don't get a lot. Mostly we are left to make our own choices according to our own free will, and then we suffer the joys of the, the, you know, the consequences the results anyway of uh, what our choices are. And that's what we do here. The nudging is mostly done by the LCS, by the system to help us on uh, our way, to help us uh, grow up. Like the uh, gentleman who was here earlier who uh, got, got nudged with this idea that, you know, he had potential. He could become something good, something great. Just, he could lower his entropy. That would make him great. That would be good. And he had the ability to make the choices to do that and to give him that idea when he felt that maybe there was no hope that he could ever do anything was something that kept him going. So that's the kind of nudge we often get from the, from the system that just helps us get by. And that's typically the sort of nudges we have to put up with. The nudges that we get, say, from peers, we can kind of filter those out uh, we tend to uh, we tend to um, not be pushed around by that we tend to filter it just like that friend was talking to us you know a friend talks to you you may or may not take his advice most of the time it's not you know we tend to make our own choices for our own reasons and don't take advice very often or very well so that typically is the way we are, even uh, even if the vice comes telepathically. We're not slaves to those kinds of nudges. We can always say no. Hey, Tom, uh, Keith gave me permission to uh, – I had a little story to tell you I thought you'd appreciate about data streams in a virtual reality. So I was playing a virtual reality game a little while back and we were hunting orcs you know we were hunting all these orcs there are npcs and we were uh their corpses were all littering the ground it was you know taking up the entire screen and it was getting really difficult for me to even do anything in the game because all i could see were just these orcs uh and so someone told me all I had to do was type in slash hide corpse all, you know, and as soon as I did that command, all the corpses were no longer in my data stream anymore. And anything that were on their bodies and any items or it was no longer accessible to me. And to think I was live, you know, I was playing for nearly a half hour with that in my reality where this person, it wasn't even a, a part of his reality but we were right next to each other sharing the same space. And I thought that that was, you know, almost exactly how it works here in that someone could be seeing, you know, a UFO or something right in front of them. And the person next to them, it's just not in their data stream, you know, that. And uh, I had that moment. I, I thought uh, you'd appreciate that little story. 
Yes, that is that can happen. That does happen sometimes. I read a story about uh, some people who saw, uh, heard a lot of noise, a lot of booms, uh, flashes of light, went outside. There were like four or five of them in the house. Uh, they went outside. They looked. They saw a big fire, big fireball going up over an area where there was a, a petroleum storage or something. Uh, fire engines, sirens, all kinds of mayhem going on because there was some kind of a catastrophe happening uh, not that far away. And um, uh, they had a someplace, at least a couple of them stayed home there. And people were out in the yards, you know, the neighbors, everybody was out in their yards looking to see what was what was going on because you could see this five, ten miles away. So they talked to neighbors, what's going on, do you know? If you, heard, you know, what's happening over there? And and anyway, they left after a while. Some of the people in this house left, went someplace, came back. And uh, all the people in their house that had were together, everybody had seen that. Everybody had gone out. They'd all talked to their neighbors. But the neighbors didn't know anything about it. What fire? No sirens, no police, no fire trucks, nothing. Yet there was a bunch of people in the house who lived through that scenario. And uh, they got complete deadpan from all the people that was in their neighborhood. Nobody heard any of it. Just a different data stream. So that kind of thing does happen here sometimes. And it happens for a reason. It was a lesson. You know, it was a lesson for them. They were getting a special data stream that gives them some special challenges as to how they would interact with that. It's almost like a dream, but it's not in the dream reality. It's here in the physical reality. And uh, those things happen, but they're in the margins. They don't happen often. So it's not like, you know, everybody has these kinds of experiences. It's a very, very rare experience to do that. And the system is only going to do that for a special case where certain people need a certain experience to grow up or to get a bigger idea and it just creates that experience for them in their own private data stream. That's that happens. Yeah, you know, I also knew a guy who who had a problem with his cell phone, and he kept losing his cell phone, and he would find it in the strangest places. So his cell phone would just disappear, and then he'd find it in his sock drawer, and then the next week it would disappear, and he'd find it, you know, like in the washing machine. Not run, not wet, just in the washing machine. Or he'd find it, you know, some other place. Just odd places like that. And it kept happening to him. That things, stuff would just disappear and then show up someplace that, like, someplace he'd never been or someplace that he wouldn't go. And uh, it was just the system telling him that this reality isn't as buttoned down as you think. It's a stranger place. And uh, that got him interested in you know, going to the net and looking up, you know, strange things, which led him into, you know, non-physical, which led him into, led him into my books, which was why he communicated with me, you know, and told me about the things that had happened. So it got him going as a seeker because he had these experiences. So, yes, just a different data stream than, uh, than other people for, you know, just for that person. So those kinds of things do happen. But also your comment on you and your friends and your fighting orcs and there's bodies everywhere also is a comment on that violent reality that you were talking about that you want to save your children from. I know. As soon as I was thinking of it, you know, I was like, oh, man, burying my own grave here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Talk about a culture that's acculturated to, to force and violence and uh, whatever else. 
that's just the way our culture is. And that, uh, <laughs> that Y chromosome uh, tends to uh, resonate with that sort of thing. So there you are. But you can handle it. A three-year-old can't handle that. They can't process it. They can't make sense of it. They can't put that into perspective. You know, for them, what they see on the TV is as real as, as what they see anywhere else. So when they're young like that, you have to protect them from those things that they cannot process. You can process it. Oh, it's just a game. You know, it's not a problem. Nobody gets hurt. You know, we're just playing this game. But, you know, oh, it's just a movie. You know, there is no Bambi. And Bambi didn't have a mother, and she really didn't get killed. It was just a movie. Somebody made that up. Well, tell that to a three-year-old, and it won't help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that's too much. That, that's too much to take, in my mind at least. Too much. What do you mean Bambi is just a movie? Sorry? Okay. <laughs> um, um, so I'm moving swiftly on from that then. Uh, MBT forum user Nowinin says, Hi Tom, now and then I meet people who need feedback to their actions that they probably will find unpleasant. Before I stumbled upon MBT, I often used to give feedback that was depending on how much my ego fled up in a microsecond or two. Of course, this resulted in feedback that was way too much, and the total entropy got much higher than before the feedback, if you want to use MBT terms. But that was just me being authentic. But after I found MBT, I've tried to adjust my reaction to stuff that annoys me, mostly by using my intellect and ignoring my ego. I know that what annoys me most is mostly dependent on my fear and ego, but sometimes people do things that 99% of the world's population would say is simply wrong. And I mean, I have to agree with him. Uh, It would be wrong just to ignore it, surely, just to keep the entropy low in the short term. Do we just walk away and let the police or other capable person step in after a while and do the dirty work? I guess my question is this. What is the appropriate amount of negative or positive, in some cases, feedback? Well, it just depends on your intent. You see, um, you're trying to group, you know, all of your reactions into into one one basket. And there are times when you need to step in. There's times when you need to know that enough is enough. That's, you know, we're not talking about MBT is is not a pacifist philosophy that says no matter what happens, you just stand by and watch it. You're not to interfere. You're not to, you know, push back. If you get pushed, you don't push back. If somebody steals your children, you know, you don't push back. You just, you have to let them get away with that because they will learn their own lesson in their own time. And you, uh, you know, you, you never fight. You never get violent for any reason or you become part of the problem. We don't think that way. I don't think that way. And MBT doesn't think that way. There's a time to stand up and, you know, measure up to your responsibilities. You know, if somebody's bothering a child and you, and it's not their parent. You know, parents are allowed to bother children. Their parents are allowed to spank children and to pick them up and haul them off. But others aren't if it's not their child. And if you see something that looks like abuse, you should step into it carefully because you're not sure what the circumstance is. But if you feel like that's something you need to do, then do it. That's being authentic. Um, most of the time, the things you talk about, people irritate you. It's not them, it's you. You choose to be irritated. It's your own sense of ego that creates the, you know, the irritation. You feel slighted or you feel like unfairly dealt with or whatever. And then your ego swells up and you, you get uh, 
maybe boisterous or loud or, or upset or something. Well, that's yours to fix. And you don't fix that by, you know, slapping the other person and telling them never say that again in front of me. You see, that would be where your violence is not part of the solution. It's part of the problem. Other times, your violence may be part of the solution. If somebody's doing something really terrible and, and evil and you get a chance to stop it, well, stop it. Don't just let it go on because it's not your personal problem. You need then to rise to the occasion. So it gets down to what is your intent? What's your intent to do this? If your intent is to get even, to make yourself feel better, and your intent is born out of your ego and from your fear, then that's not a good thing to do. If your intent is born out of caring for other, then it probably is a good thing to do. So you have to understand the situation, understand all the interactions going on, and be careful and, you know, be, uh, you know, keep your, your mind and, and ears and eyes open to what's happening and what's going on and why. But then if you feel like you need, because other is going to depend on you or the other like your children or your responsibility to take care of, well, then you need to step up perhaps and be violent. You don't uh, just sit by and let the evil run over you because you don't want to act the same way they do. You're not acting the same way they do. The ethics, the morality of your actions are not the action itself. It's the intent behind the action. If the intent behind the action is one of lowering entropy, is one of caring for others, then proceed carefully. If your intent is about self, oh, it's about me, that upsets me, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I don't like them doing that to me, then perhaps you ought to think a little bit more about, is it your fear and your ego, or does something really need to be said to this person? Maybe they are acting very rudely, and maybe they're not aware of it, and maybe you should mention that, uh, you know, that's not a good way to, you know, interact with people or something. But if all that does is make it worse, if all that does is throw gasoline on the fire, then that was the wrong thing to do, you see? So your own experience will help you understand when's a good time and understand the person, you know, when's the time to, to say something, when's not. Perhaps that rude person that you're talking about, instead of confronting them, which would just make them ruder and make the whole thing worse, you should perhaps just turn the other cheek and later, when they're not in a rage, you might have a heart-to-heart -heart talk in a case that where they could maybe listen to what you had to say. But right then at that time would be a poor choice. So it's not that morality doesn't go with the action. It goes with the intent, and you have to use wisdom in applying that intent to action. So you need to pick your times to minimize the, the uh, overall entropy that's going to happen. So if you get in the way of you know, evil, that's good. You're minimizing you know, the entropy. If you, you know, say things that just infuriate somebody who's already infuriated and you infuriate him more, you're just raising the entropy. That's not a good thing. Even if you're right and they're wrong, it doesn't matter. It makes things worse. It's not about being right. It's about at the end of the day, is entropy higher or lower because of what you said or did or thought? That's the, that's kind of the key. So there isn't anything that says in all instances, act like this. That doesn't work. It's, it's your intent. 
and your intent is based on on whether you're going to raise or lower the entropy in the in the long term. All right, Tom, thank you very much. Um, John has a question he wants to ask about music. Very nice. John, it's yours. Thanks, Keith. Yeah, um, it's very interesting to hear you talk about music, Tom. Um, you mentioned that's, that we have a limited perspective about music, and that was interesting to hear. At, at the moment, there's a kind of musical revolution going on where Musicians are tuning their instruments to 432 hertz instead of 440 hertz. And also this is connected with binaural beats because, if you know, if you Google binaural beats, you get 432 hertz binaural beats and also 528 hertz as well. And there's that guy, Dr. Horowitz, is going around, he's touring around the world talking about 528 hertz being the love frequency and that you can make plants grow faster with it. You can purify water with it and all kinds of things like that. So I'd be very interested to hear your, your comments about this. Well, sound affects us in ways that are beneath our intellect, obviously. We hear music and we respond to that music um, emotionally. We respond to that music uh, at, a, at a being level, not an intellectual level. So it's, it's a thing that communicates with us at the being level or can communicate with us at the being level. I guess it depends on what kind of music and what your preferences are. We could just intellectually listen to music, but mostly we're talking about if you're listening to it at the being level, that's where it has significance and meaning to you, where it can make you cry or make you laugh. And with that sort of communication to yourself at the being level, then yes, certain frequencies tend to have various effects on our physiology, which also then affects our, um, you know, what our consciousness can do with us. For instance, the, the four hertz binaural beat, which uses two frequencies that are just different by four hertz, the difference frequency is the four hertz, that will tend to drive EEG, brainwaves, down into the theta state, into the 4 hertz state. And that's true of uh, any sort of frequency. It's more powerful if it's a binaural beat, which means, you know, frequency one in this year, frequency two, four cycles different in this year. So let's say 100 in this year and 104 in that year. The difference is four cycles. That'll produce a beat frequency of four cycles per second in the corpus callosum between the two hemispheres. And that tends to entrain the brain or push the brain toward theta state EEG, brainwave production. So it has effect on us. And that four hertz theta brainwave production corresponds to a a kind of a, a mental state, a consciousness state, if you will. That's a place where the where the consciousness uh, is more, you know, you're more aware at an intuitive level at that state, more tuned with your with your uh, free will awareness unit. So things like that happen. Now, if you just hear the four hertz beat in air, so now I have a speaker and I have a speaker with, you know, uh, let's see what I have over here, 100 hertz here and then a speaker with 104 hertz here. And they're just putting stuff out into the room. I still hear a four hertz beat in the air. It's not as powerful as one that's binaural, but it still works. 
it still tends to encourage a little more production of theta, you know, EEG output. So music has that ability. And if it's not in the theta, if it's up at the beta region or up at even higher frequencies than that, it tends to make maybe clarity. It makes you maybe more aware, um, more solidly here, not so attached to your intuition, more focused here. So different frequencies can affect the, you know, the mood that we're in and the way we process information. So yes, it can be a, you know, a powerful thing. Now, unless you do it in stereo, you can't do, you know, isolated stereo, like in a headset, you can't do binaural, but you can do it out of speakers like you would if listening to a band or somebody play. It's a, it's a weaker effect, but it still has an effect. Those things can affect us. Um, you notice uh, in the, um, in a lot of, of uh, ancient peoples, they would have drumming as a part of their culture. And that drumming almost always was, you know, around that same frequency that you're talking about, you know, the drumming circles and the drumming. And if you do that, then you drop people more into a, into a, uh, a theta state, alpha states relax you. Theta state is more into your intuition, a little deeper. Then you go down lower, you lose consciousness. That's the delta region. So the, the drumming, the music, the beats, and you can have two instruments, and those two instruments can be tuned such that they create a four hertz between them. You know, you can have one body hitting this tone, and another one has just got their strings just a little tighter, which raises their frequency up just a little bit, and you can create overtones between things that, that are in the lower frequency ranges that can affect the EG. So it's a pretty complex thing. And I guess musicians, if they if they have a lot of experience with what makes our audiences mellow and what makes audiences, you know, jump up and boogie, they probably have a, an idea of what kind of sounds create what kind of feelings among their audiences. And eventually they could, in, they could figure out ways to play music that uh, produces a certain effect in their audience. So I think all that's probably got merit to it if it's done carefully. Now, I don't think I'd worry about mind control that somebody's going to get up and play a song and we're all going to turn into zombies and get up and, uh, you know, walk off without bending our knees and, you know, holding our hands up in front of us and, uh, you know, go out to, you know, rob a bank or something because we heard the rob a bank song. You know, it's not going to do that. All it does is it, it kind of decreases the barriers toward being in that state. So if you're in a normal awake state in a concert, there's a certain amount of barrier to being in a theta state because there's a lot of action going on in things. You're focused, you're, you're, you know, your intents flying around, your attention's flying around to different things. And that's not consistent with a theta state. So these are all barriers to a theta state. Then the musicians come on and play something of the right frequency. And now those barriers are reduced and the theta state is easier to attain even with stuff going on. So it just makes it kind of easier to attain, but it doesn't force it. Nobody's forced to go into a state. Nobody's forced to respond in that way. You kind of, you know, it's like with hypnotherapy. You have to be, uh, you know, you have to go along with the hypnotherapist. If you go to a hypnotherapist and you just sit there and he's talking to you and trying to put you into a hypnotic trance and you're saying, no, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to cooperate with that. Well, it won't. It just won't work. You can't be forced. 
but it can release the barrier so that you just kind of go there easily. So it's not a, a, a matter of uh, they're going to play music that'll make us turn us all into zombies or something, but uh, they can make it easier for us to relax or feel good or jump up and down and get excited. Yeah, that uh, that's what happens when they communicate directly to your emotional centers. Okay, so do you think it's a good thing that musicians are changing from 440 hertz to 432? Should I tune my guitar to 432 now? <laughs> well, it depends on what your goals are, I guess. You know, it depends on what you're doing. Are you trying to, you know, calm your, uh, you know, your your children? Or are you trying to, you know, make something that'll uh, sell a lot on the, you know, if you want to sell music, uh, you have you need music that grabs people, you know? maybe gets them excited or maybe, uh, you know, grabs them at some other emotional level. And that's not what's going to put somebody to sleep or make them calm. So it kind of depends on what it is you're trying to do. I wouldn't say that you just want to retune just in general. I think it would depend on what's your purpose. What's your point? What are your, what are you going to do with your music and then kind of retune accordingly. So you're saying that, that four, three, two makes people more relaxed. I mean, we just want to get a, a better, more stronger emotional connection really no matter what the music is it could be upbeat could be you know relaxing whatever i'd have to look at those frequencies 432 i'd have to look at that and see just how that how that comes out as far as uh you know um i don't know i'm not sure i don't know enough about those particular frequencies and what they might do to really give you information on that I know more about what the binaural beats do at certain frequencies, but I don't know about the ones you're talking about, so I can't really say. But if you find something that's more relaxing, that may be a good thing if what you're trying to do is relax people. If what you're trying to do is get people excited, you know, make them stand up and dance, then you don't want to relax people. You want to hype them up. So, you know, people use uh, sometimes uh, um, minor chords for that and, uh, uh, very uh, exciting, uh, you know, riffs on the guitar or uh, in the, on the piano to grab people's attentions and hype them up rather than relax them. So it just depends on what you're what you're trying to do. But I, I don't think necessarily that any particular frequency is going to be the best thing all the time. Play with what sounds good. Okay, I see. So you don't think there's any truth to this five two eight love frequency stuff then? Probably not much, but I'd have to read some about it and get more of the details. But in general, all you're doing is is making, you know, you're in a very minor way, you're making certain attitudes and states of mind easier to get to. You're not forcing anything. If people don't want to get there, they won't get there no matter what you play. So you're just making some, maybe even attitudes and feelings a little easier for them to get to. But if they don't want to, they won't. You're not going to okay. change anyone by playing music to them. So I'd need to read about that. You maybe send me a source or something that I can I can find out more of the technical details of exactly what you're talking about, and then uh, I might have a different opinion. Okay, thanks. There could be something in it that there's a stronger emotional connection in, in these frequencies, but I'm not sure either. Yeah, it could could be. I know sound and Emotion are connected, and m mental state, they're all connected. So whether there's one sound that, that works for everybody one way 
Probably not. And your people are different. Even in the binaural beats, there's different kinds of beats work better for some and, and not so good for others. So the fact that there's just this one frequency and that affects everybody the same way, probably not true. But it may affect, you know, maybe a majority of people, possibly. But I wouldn't think a, a sound played out of a speaker is going to have a very big effect in any case. My guess is it would be very minor. Just maybe see, be pleasant. People may like it. But, you know, what you okay, find thanks. pleasant in music depends on what your ear has grown up with. You know, if you live in the East, there's a whole different set of, of tonal qualities that people find pleasing that just irritate Westerners to no end because it's a different, uh, you know, it's a different style of music. Okay, thanks a lot. John, whatever, whatever you have got on the love frequency, John, send over to me and we'll have a look at it, Keith, at mbtevents.com. I know we've said in the past to anyone out there, if you are inspired as a musician by MBT, you've got music or songs, let us know. We'd like to hear from you about it. Specifically, if you've had experience with this 432 hertz and it's worked for you, we'd like to hear from you. Uh, the other thing is the binaural beats that Tom mentions. Uh, he did create a set back in 2015. They are available from the mbtevents.com website for 20 bucks. Okay, I've got to move on. Um, Adam, you've got a, a question, a follow-up uh, music question, I believe. Yeah, to stay on the music topic, Tom, I'm wondering what what is the extent of information that you can uh, transmit just from music? You know, can you transmit these ideas of a bigger picture just from a song, just from sound? Uh, you know, could you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, no, you're not going to transmit uh, a bigger picture to somebody. Um, just with the sound, I think that's not the case. What you can do, do is you can, again, lower lower the boundaries or lower the the, the uh, constraints on a particular emotion and feeling. So you can make somebody feel sad or melancholy or introspective if you've got that violin playing just the right way to make you you know feel kind of mellow and introspective, or you can make them anxious and jump up if you playing stuff that makes them want to move instead of sit still. So you can affect people emotionally, but you're not going to change their picture. Now, if you add words to the song, then intellectually they can listen to the words and that may help them see a bigger picture. If the words are such that it triggers something in their mind that then makes sense, but mostly no music is entertaining and it changes your mood and it sounds good, feels good. But it's not going to be a, a life changer unless you're the musician. <laughs> then music can be a life changer. <laughs>